here we are in uh, the month of January, and uh, we've had a couple episodes where we all got to experience winter driving here in Canada. And when you are uh, driving and you feel that you're losing traction, you feel a little bit out of control, the most natural, instinctive, you know, intuitive thing to do is to take your foot off the gas. And uh, it just comes naturally to us. Uh, years ago, when I was learning to uh, race on uh, the Shannonville Speedway, I was told by my instructor very specifically um, not to do what comes intuitively, not to take my foot off the gas. My car was rear wheel drive and he said you have to load the weight on the back and so when you find yourself sliding and losing control, you actually need to keep your foot on the gas. It was totally counterintuitive, but he was right. And even though it was counterintuitive, it was correct because I found out the wrong way, the hard way by uh, going off a corner and then involuntarily plowing a community garden uh, in the grass. Our text this morning, uh, as we head into our series on perseverance and patience and peace, there's portions of it that sound quite counterintuitive, but they're correct. In fact, there's lots and lots of scripture that as you read it, it's going to hit your ear and it's going to sound counterintuitive, but it is correct. And uh, this is because, of course, the one who created us is recreating us. The one who created us knows how to forge uh, the work of his spirit, the fruit of his spirit in us, forming perseverance and patience and peace in us. And so we look to God's word this morning uh, for those things from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. I'm going to read to verse 25. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and you suffer for it, you, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He bore our sins on a tree, in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Can you imagine the reaction um, of the first church when they heard that phrase, honor the emperor? Can you imagine being that first century church and you gather and you're in the home and you're eating uh, and drinking together and you're about to read a psalm or you're about to read a, a, a passage or, or recite a passage from the Old Testament scriptures as you did every Sunday. And all of a sudden someone comes in and says, hey, we got a letter from Peter. It's his first one. Let's read it. And he starts reading it. And it, they get to this place where it says, honor the emperor. I bet you that first church was probably doing spit takes with their wine. Can you just, let's let this sink right in. They would have been freaking out. What? Give me that letter. There's no way it says honor the government. There's no way it says that. Give, it, give me that letter here. We got to read that in the original language. Oh shoot, I forgot. We all speak the original language. There it is right there. Ton Besalia Temate. Honor the emperor. That's what it means. I just can't imagine what that must have felt like for them. Because that church was living under a tyrannical government which, with massive governmental overreach beyond anything that any of us are ever going to know. Um, you know, for us reading this text, it's difficult to swallow. And yet here we are where uh, we have a various hand, you know, uh, handful of means uh, with which to deal with our disagreements with our government. Um, if you don't like what the government is doing, you can write your MPP. You can set up a, a, a meeting, a phone call. Uh, when you know pre-COVID, you could go down and set up a meeting in the office, and you could have a discussion, and you could air your grievances. Um, you can get a few thousand people together that feel the same way you do, and you can write a petition. You can uh, take a space in the park, and you can have a peaceful, nonviolent protest. In fact, if you want to displace our government, you can displace the government by this thing we call voting. Every four years, we can displace our government. We can all, with our voices, say, your time is done, you're out. Uh, you know, we might, not, we might think we need more means. We might not like those means. It doesn't matter, you know, kind of how you feel about it. The point is, uh, we have a lot more available to us than this first church did. When they just got this letter that said, you know, that to subject themselves to human institutions and uh, the government. I just can't imagine what it would have been like for them. And, and, and further, I'm just going to push this for one more second. Imagine 100 years from the point that this letter was written, if you pin it to church history. 100 years after this, they're gathered in their houses and they're eating and they're drinking and they're going to uh, read a portion of scripture. And then, they, and then they read this one. And by this point in Rome, a hundred years after this letter is written, um, in the Colosseum, people are yelling, uh, Christianus ad leones, Christians to the lions. And while some people are yelling, Christianus de leones, Christians to the lions, they're reading, uh, ton basilia temate, honor the emperor. I just can't even imagine how counterintuitive and offensive and difficult to swallow all of this would have been for that first church. But what is God's goal in all of this? I mean, what is his intention? Is it that we are, is this, this text to make us doormats and make us weak? Was Jesus a doormat and weak? Or was Jesus tougher than nails? What is God's goal here? When we look at Jesus, his ability to submit and serve and, 
and sacrifice and empty himself was not a sign of weakness whatsoever. It, it just demonstrated he was free in a way we don't understand freedom. He was, is tougher than nails. Um, and when we grasp this text, my friends, uh, we will not become doormats and we will not uh, cower through life in weakness, but that in our souls, God will forge perseverance and patience and peace so that metaphorically speaking, God's desire is that we are free from all things that our souls would be tougher than nails. The Bible is intensely political. It is constantly dethroning and unmasking um, the limitations of those who rule in political power. The Bible is intensely political. It is provocatively asking the question all the time, on every other page it seems, who rules the world? Who in the end rules the world? Who rules your heart? Who rules the, the human heart? Who do you trust? Where do you allocate all of your hope? And uh, to be clear, when I say the Bible is political, I don't mean um, that uh, whatever political affiliation you happen to belong to, whoever's card is in your pocket, that that becomes your lens for scripture and you check a bunch of boxes to see you know, how many things in the Bible line up with your political party. That's totally backwards. I'm not talking about that unholy union uh, between modern, modern uh, political uh, philosophy and partnership with the Bible. I mean, it's political, it's, it's political proper. The whole Bible is about rule and law and a nation and a people and who we belong to and how we live together uh, as citizens, as God's people, and how we live uh, as citizens in cities uh, with those who have divergent views that are just absolutely nothing like our own. How do we do this and seek uh, the love and flourishing of our cities? And, you know, these days, there's two nonstop political conversations you probably find yourself always engaged in. COVID has pushed, they've always been there, but it's pushed to the forefront, which is, you know, conversations about justice and injustice or conversations about, um, you know, personal freedoms and freedom. And uh, when you look at Jesus, who this text tells us directly to stare and gaze at, when you look at Jesus, Jesus lost both of those things. Jesus was stripped of both justice uh, and he was stripped of personal freedoms. Uh, just totally stripped. But what does the text say Jesus did? It says he trusted in the one who judges justly. And uh, I hope I say that about 20 more times before the sermon is over. He trusted in the one who judges justly. Okay, good, 18 more. Um, true justice and true righteousness are coming, uh, but you can't expect them now. We, we are gonna lose a lot of uh, sleep if we expect them now. We are to honor, honor the government, uh, but we can't ha have unrealistic expectations on the government that they, were gonna that they are gonna somehow provide for us things that are just utterly beyond their scope, uh, like peace and tranquility in our hearts and a secure future. And, um, and salvation. Uh, these things are just utterly beyond their scope. So we, as we look at the text this morning, um, there's a lot that can be pulled from it. So I suppose I'm sort of skipping a stone today. But I want to look at three things um, because I always look at three things because my brain can't handle more. But I want to look at the implications of our identity, the outworkings of our citizenship, and the example and empowerment of our Savior. So First, the implications of our identity. Notice how it's described in verse 9. This is really intentional. And uh, Kingsley Lai, who preached last week, he touched on this a little bit. 
We're described in the same terms that Israel was described. Chosen, royal, holy, God's own people. These same titles that were applied um, uh, to God's people all throughout the Old Testament are being applied to God's people today. To be chosen, this is a picture of incredible grace. A picture of uh, scandalous, undeserved mercy. To be chosen by God. Um, It is a picture that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that the saving God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ, the saving God of the New Testament. They are one and the same. All, all throughout all of history have been saved by the saving God who manifested in Jesus Christ. And we have been chosen. Why have we been chosen? We have been chosen for the same reason that anybody has ever been chosen by God. That as recipients of his grace and mercy, we would be ministers of his grace and mercy. As those chosen to receive his blessing, that we would go into the city to our neighbors, to the people who live right next to you in small and simple, powerful, beautiful ways and be ministers of the gospel. We have been chosen uh, for this this, uh, exact purpose. It calls us a royal priesthood. The priests in the Old Testament had unprecedented, you know, access to God, unique access to God. But now Jesus Christ, our high priest, purified uh, us through his perfect righteousness. We're, we are called royal priests, but we are standing in a borrowed holiness. And so we're called royal priests. We have this access to God. We're called a holy nation. That's political language. It's intentionally political language to be called a holy nation. It, what it says is, of course, you can honor the government because you already have a king. You're governed and ruled by the king of the universe. And it gets better than that because not only are we governed by a king, but the next descriptor of our identity says we are his own special possession. The king is our father. So all of these things speak to our identity. This is an identity that is not achieved through our work. It is an identity that is received by the grace of Christ. Why have we received this identity? Because God loves us. And the verse nine ends with saying, It is so that we will proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus Christ lived the life of perfect love to the Father and perfect love of neighbor that you and I ought to be living, but we're not. And he lived in a perfect imitation of the love of God. And he was perfectly obedient to the ways of God. And he walked in a justice and a mercy uh, that we wish we did, but we don't. And the good news of the gospel is he went to the cross, he died an atoning death, arose on the third day and imputed his righteousness to us so that his perfect track record is ours. The reason we need to start here with the implications of this identity is because it is from this identity that we understand citizenship. Not just divine spiritual citizenship that's abstract, but how divine citizenship plays out in our very earthly Canadian citizenship. So let's move on uh, to that and let's look at the outworkings of our citizenship. It looks like living free. That's where this text flows to, living as free people. So let's break it down, this outworking of citizenship. Verse 11, it says, we're called exiles and we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. To be an exile, it means you're not home. And the passion of the flesh in the Greek is epithemia, which means this over and intense driving desire uncontrollable emotion. It's like your soul is on autopilot and you have no choice about it. 
Well, because we've been saved, we've been freed from all of the epithemia, the uncontrollable driving autopilot passions. And what it means to be an exile who's abstaining from these things is that we don't feel at home living life on autopilot. We don't feel at home just living life led around by our consuming, driving desires. Our new identity means we have a new citizenship. It means in verse 16 that now, by the grace of God, we are able to live free. And this epithemia, these these over you know overwhelming, uncontrolling sort of enslaving uh, patterns, um, they 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 highlight the fact that we're being driven by whatever is has our highest allegiance. So see our identity in the grace of Christ, our new citizen citizenship because of the grace of Christ means we have a new highest allegiance. That's why the political language is there. We have a king. Our highest allegiance is now to God. And so thank God for the indwelling power of his spirit that we're not slaves to our old ways of living. And you know, these 10 months or 11 months or maybe it's been 14 years, I forget how long we've been in COVID, but COVID has, it is exposed all of the the fear and the uncontrollable enslaving driving emotions sort of expose the weariness that comes when you go through life with the epithemia just sort of driven by whatever is your highest allegiance. It just results in weariness, right? If your highest allegiance is to your health, and this is a nightmare for you because you need the future for you, uh, you know, it looks like everybody installing, uh, you know, quarantine uh, uh, airlock chambers in their houses so you feel safe in the future. It, it, is, it is absolutely wearying, wearying and catastrophic. But if you're not worried about your health, you say, oh, we'll be sick for two weeks and we'll get on with our lives. It's the economy that's going to die. It's the fear of the death of the economy, fear of the death of society as we know it, fear of death of, of community and regardless of where that highest allegiance ends up sort of becoming epithemia in this all-driving force, it results in uh, this incredible weariness. To quote from Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when your God is in the coffin, how will it be your hope when your heart is breaking? You know, at the time that this scripture was written, there were a lot of accusations against the church. And so the way we live out our citizenship, heavenly citizenship, really matters in your day-to-day political citizenship because there was accusations against the church. That's why in verse 12, it says, keep your conduct honorable. And kind of, there's other texts that speak the exact same way because there's a lot of, you know, false accusations and rumors about, about the church. You know, your, your, your communion, your eating, your eating body and drinking blood, there's cannibalism, these agape feasts, these love feasts you're having, these are wild sex orgies, because that's what we're up to, so that's definitely what the Christians are up to. Or there was, you know, Christians are antisocial, myopic, sort of self-righteous people. You don't participate in any of our feasts and our festivals. Why aren't you guys engaged in, in, in our parties? You guys just keep to yourselves. All of these all of these accusations against the church. Peter knows this. And, um, and so he's saying, you know, keep your conduct, verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. So the response is not sort of the church to isolate, the church to become angry, you know, uh, pull away from their neighbors. He's saying, you know, engage with your neighbors in a way that makes the gospel attractive to your neighbors. That's why the end of that verse says, they will, some of them will, 
glorify God on the day of visitation. What is that? That means on judgment day, they're praising God. What does that mean? It means that they've come to faith. Now, this teaches us a couple things. Um, the first thing is Peter knows that being a caring, conscientious citizen is not the gospel. It's not the message of the gospel. What he knows is, if you are a caring and conscientious citizen, you will remove very preventable <laughs> barriers from having your neighbors believe the actual message of the gospel, which is Christ's perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection and the restoration of all things. Right? They will be much more open to believing in the Jesus that we proclaim um, if we are caring and conscientious Citizens, And so the way that our faith is to be walked out in the city and with our neighbors is not to be repulsive, but attractive. Um, this is the implications of our new citizenship, you know, in the day to day. There are accusations against the church in Kitchener-Waterloo today. There are people who many of your co-workers and your friends think that Christians are bigoted or angry or self-righteous and keep to where we don't care about the greater community. We only care about our tiny little redeemer community and what happens in the city doesn't matter to us. They believe all these things. So the practical outworkings of our faith, the practical outworkings of our identity as chosen priests and ministers, it's going to look like practical care for the city in small, beautiful, powerful ways. For some of you, that might look like learning the names of your neighbors. It might be as simple as that. If you don't know the names of your neighbors, don't feel condemned. Simply make an effort. As we move forward, uh, see yourself as a minister in the city. See yourself as in small and beautiful ways, caring, being a caring and conscientious citizen. This is the practical outworkings of, uh, of our faith. You know, the last 10 months has, of course, changed and disturbed and frustrated the way that we worship and minister as a church. But it has not stopped the way that we worship and minister as a church. It can't stop. It will not stop the church. Many of you have been ministering to your neighbors, people at work. I hear beautiful, small and beautiful stories all the time. Many of you are getting outside yourselves to care for each other. And we need to just continue to do this as we muscle through these difficult days together. When you come to verse 16, it says, don't use your freedom as an as excuse for sin. We're supposed to live as free people. And that's really this kind of sort of the center of this passage is this freedom and walking out that freedom. How can you commit sin if you're exercising freedom? Well, that depends on your definition of freedom. You see, uh, when you read... Verses 17 through 20, freedom gets, play, freedom gets expounded upon. Look at what that freedom looks like. And it's, freedom is not fixated on the self. Freedom is intentionally focused away from the self. You read those verses, it's like love the church and fear your God and honor the government. And when you're a, a, when you're a servant and you're going to work in your vocation, you should walk with integrity with your masters, with your with your, the bosses. Right there, there is this freedom gets played out like service. Freedom does not look like a fixation on the self, but actually we're oriented away from ourselves. Our new identity, our new citizenship, 
it plays out with a very new definition of freedom. And it's on a, it's on a collision course with our cultural ideas about freedom. So we do this, of course, because we have a new king. So let's look at our king. This is the final thing we want to look at this morning. The example and the empowerment of our Savior. Verse 21 says, Jesus continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, God will forge perseverance and patience and peace in you and I as we trust in the one who judges justly. So if we're to live as free people, what did Jesus' freedom look like? Well, it looked like he was free from the expectations of everybody. He was free from the fear of being dominated by everybody. And because Jesus was essentially free from everybody, he was free to serve and love and give and empty himself and die for everybody. Free from everybody, free for everybody. That's Jesus, and you're going to find that the Apostle Paul also echoes that very same uh, uh, gospel logic, that when you are free from this, you are so free, you're able to serve and to love. This is the picture of biblical freedom. Jesus was so free, he washed the dirt and the dung off of his disciples' feet. He's the king who stoops. That's not a picture of weakness. Our Jesus is tougher than nails. Can we stoop? You know, regardless of your views on the severity of the coronavirus or the government measures, whether the government is not doing enough or they've done too much and they're really overreaching or the vaccine is, you know, salvation or not taking the vaccine as a Regardless of all of your views on all of this stuff, are you and I, are we free enough to look out past ourselves to care uh, for each other in this church community and in, our, uh, in the greater community? Can we get outside of ourselves so that we're not simply echoing the culture message, uh, whatever that, whatever, you know, your inclination means to be. But can you, are you so free that you can center on the message and be a minister that is encouraging uh, with the message of the goodness of God's love and his grace and the renewal of all things? You know, if the sun rises and sets on, uh, on us, we're not free. If, it, if the sun rises and sets on our wants and our needs and our philosophies of what we're going through these days, we're not free. Verse 13 says, the phrase is so interesting, provocative, be subject for the Lord's sake. And then it goes on to talk about how we serve others. Uh, that kind of freedom is on a collision course with our cultural ideas around freedom because broadly speaking, our culture relates to freedom in personal terms. Whereas in Jesus, we see freedom walked out in sacrificial terms, right? <clears throat> Broadly speaking, our culture relates to freedom in personal terms. Don't you dare require restriction from me. But in Jesus, what do we find? In order to love you and serve you, I will gladly put restrictions on me. This is the picture of a new citizen walked out, the true freedom of the soul that's by God's grace alone. Right? Jesus, was, Jesus was free. And then he restricted himself to human flesh. 
He took on the restriction of human flesh. He took on the restriction of being born as one under the law. He took on the restriction of being born into poverty. He took on this restriction of going to a cross. He took on the restriction of laying in a grave, the restriction of death for three days. We can trust him. We can trust him. Trust in the one who judges justly. This is your pathway to perseverance and patience and peace. Verse 23 when, he was reviled, when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's not weak. It's tougher than nails. And so may God, by his grace, liberate us from our own selfishness so we can walk uh, in this freedom. Because it's possible that as the cultural groaning continues, that we, we sort of get sucked into the weariness. And, and perhaps if you're honest, you got sucked into the weariness and you started looking other places for salvation, just like everybody else has been looking for salvation. Perhaps part of the weariness uh, in your life is because it's somewhere along the line, you know, there's been this exaltation of, of, of science and measures and rules and that's sort of become uh, the salvation. Or perhaps it's not trusting in science and rules and measures and perhaps that's been the salvation. Anti this and anti that. That's the salvation. Or, or perhaps it hasn't been those things. Perhaps it's been, ah, follow me into neo-Gnosticism as we go down these obscure uh, sort of conspiracy uh, Reddit threads because there's a small select group of us that really see behind everything. We really know what's going on and that's salvation. None of these things are salvation. Everything in your newsfeed is passing away. But the good news of Jesus Christ is life, death, and resurrection. This is salvation. The restoration of all things. This is salvation. The restoration of everything that you truly long in your soul. This is salvation. This is coming in Jesus Christ. And so we want to focus on the big story. Right? The big story of the gospel. And so the, the, the text closes with this. By his stripes you are healed. Healed of what? Healed of sickness and disease and the coronavirus? Man, oh, it's much bigger than that. It's infinitely better than that. What are we healed of? Look at the text. We're healed of sin. We're healed of the finality of death. He himself bore our sins on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The perseverance, the peace, the patience that we need in this day is found in him. The world came screeching to a stop. The world is still sort of limping along. Everyone that you know is either worried or weary or angry or impatient or a combination of the both because they either you know, fear physical death or economic death or some other form of death. But praise God, our God has already dealt with our biggest problem, which is death. You are in the hands of the one who defeated death. You are loved by Jesus who promises to care for your every need. He promises to be with you. He will forge by the power of his indwelling spirit, perseverance and patience and peace in you. You are loved by a love that is so strong, death itself cannot hold you. Trust in the one who judges justly. Let's pray.